Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. So, Molly, we've talked a lot about beauty in this podcast, the social constructs surrounding beauty, especially female beauty, the beauty myth, etc. things that we do to ourselves to make ourselves more aesthetically pleasing mm-hmm. to the people around us. Uh, so today we're going to put some some money behind it, okay? Say is is beauty is beauty actually paying us back? In our wallet. It's not just paying us back in terms of having more friends, having more lovers, but getting a job, keeping a job, and getting paid. Yeah, I mean, they say that you've got to spend money to make money. So Mm -hmm. is it possible that the money you spend on cosmetics, on nice clothes, are you making an investment in yourself? Yeah, essentially... Do pretty people make more? And the reason why we're asking this question is because Newsweek magazine just came out with, well, I guess it's been a few weeks now that the podcast, um, when the podcast publishes, but Newsweek came out with this huge package online about the idea of beauty in the workplace. And the lead article was written by one of their writers, Jessica Bennett, who did a great job compiling a lot of studies and also highlighting this survey that Newsweek conducted, an independent survey that they conducted where they talked to, I believe it was 202 hiring managers at all different types of businesses to get their feedback on whether or not uh, beauty really makes a difference in whether or not people are hired, fired, retained, promoted, etc. And the message came back loud and clear that yes, indeed, beauty matters. Yeah, one thing that really struck me, 57% of managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting hired than someone who's more attractive. 68% believe that once hired, looks will continue to affect the way managers rate job performance. And, you know, for I think we'd all like to believe that we just have to get a job based on our experience and our education and our qualifications and we can work hard and we can get ahead. And it's, you know, it's staggering to think that, uh, it's all going to come down to what you look like. And yeah, I would say, Molly, as a, from my experience as a younger woman in the workplace, absolutely. I want to be taken seriously for whatever ideas that I bring to the table, whatever work that I produce, whatever kind of creativity and energy and all of that. You're not just another pretty face. Oh, Molly, stop it. <laughs> but no, I want to be judged for my intellect rather than, you know, however someone judges my face and my body and my overall appearance. Um, and the reason why Newsweek started asking this question in the first place can be traced back to around 1994 when this team of economists, Hammermesh and Biddle, came up with this idea of the so-called beauty premium because they looked at um, the attractiveness of different employees. Okay, they rated different employees' attractiveness and then compared that to their salaries. And Hammermesh and Biddle came up with this, quote-unquote, beauty premium of 5% income bump for the more attractive ones among us, and then a 9% plainness penalty, as they called it, 
for, you know, the plain Janes, uh, who, you know, might not, might not win a beauty, beauty pageant. And, uh, Again, as as always, when we're talking about compensation, there is a gender gap. Yep. Where um, gender wage gap, where the handsome men can make more than the most attractive women. Yeah, I mean, well, according to according to these people, it, we handsome men will make five percent more. Good lo- looking women will earn four percent more. But take that into account, though, because there's still the gender gap. So women are earning four percent less than a smaller salary than what men are already making. And to put some actual dollars behind that, uh, Haramesh, uh, came up with the figure of $250,000. A good looking man will make that much more, nearly a quarter million dollars more than his less attractive counterpart. That's staggering. That's a lot of dough. A lot of dough. I mean, like, and cause then, you know, Jessica Bennett raises the question, should you just get a nose job, invest in the nose job to like, I mean, how far do you need to take this to actually get some money out of, out of this, you know, yeah. equation? Well, cause a lot of these hiring managers that Newsweek surveyed said that yes, people who are looking for jobs need to invest some money in their appearance. Now that does, didn't necessarily mean that everyone needed to go out and get some Botox and some nose job before they went in for an interview, but they said that it did make a difference. And check this stat out. 61% of these managers said that it would be an advantage for a woman to wear work, uh, wear clothing to work, showing off her figure. Now, here's where we get into the double-edged sword for women, mm-hmm. because we've talked about this before. You can reach a point where uh, the, the clothing you wear and the appearance you put out there in the workplace can work against you. Absolutely. Because you'll just be seen as the big busted floozy, you know, all the brain power. It's nothing up there. It's all just in the boobs. Well, and it's not just, I don't think it it only has to do with bust size. It can just be, you know, tight fitting, whatever, you know, maybe makeup has been shown in different studies to have, um, to all, to not only, it will boost a woman's likability in an office, but then detract from her, perceived competence. And now we come to the stat that sums all of it up very nicely, uh, where all these same managers who are saying, oh, yeah, no, it's it's great if a woman wears figure flattering clothing, because 47 percent of these hiring managers also believe it's possible for a woman to be penalized for being too good looking. And this is when the reason why we're talking about women is because, as we'll learn more in the podcast, there's definitely a gender gap when it comes to this idea of the beauty premium, because while handsome men are it's just sky's the limit they just keep climbing they're making this $250,000 extra and it's fantastic uh but women seem to hit a beauty ceiling if you will that becomes quickly a beauty backlash now if you're feeling frustrated that it's all going to come down to what you look like i do want to throw in to, that what, what was to me the silver lining of this newsweek survey and that was, um, and it's a double-edged sword, I guess, because all those people who were participating in the survey were asked to rate nine character attributes from one to ten, ten being the most important. Um, and the attributes were things like sense of humor, where the candidate went to school, uh, experience. And so basically looks came in third out of these nine characteristics. So they're saying that education is less important than looks when it comes to getting the job. So, you know, so much for all that money your parents spent getting you an education. But 
The thing that came in first was experience. And the thing that came in second was confidence. And this is something I think we can come back to at certain points in this podcast. Now, then you got to get into, are pretty people just more confident? Yeah. Do they naturally pay more attention to their outward appearance? Or is confidence something that can be cultivated and used to our advantage in the workplace for everyone, no matter what they look like? And that, to me, is what the silver lining is, because, you know, we talk a lot about body acceptance and stuff like that in this podcast, Kristen. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that if you can find that way to find the confidence, no matter what you look like, then, then that has been ranked more important than the looks. That's the way you can overcome, to me, in some small extent, the beauty premium. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's not to say that, that being attractive is a, a bad thing at all, but it's still this issue of, I think that we have a problem socially with, you know, just using your, using your looks to get ahead, especially, you know, we, a lot of our conversations are focused around feminist ideals and that idea of just like using your body and using your looks to, uh, to move forward really isn't, isn't that well respected. It's really this idea of competence and confidence. And there was a study that we found about CEO appearance that kind of highlights this uh, distinction between appearing competent and just appearing plain likable. So what these researchers did was uh, had participants study the facial traits of CEOs. And I believe in this study, all of these CEOs, surprise, were male. And they w- rated them in terms of competence and likability, just their basic, uh, appearance. They knew nothing about, they knew nothing about these, these men. And they included CEOs from not only large firms, but also very small companies as well. And the researchers found that the, the people who were perceived to be the most competent not only headed the largest companies, but also made the most money. And they weren't necessarily, though, the most likable faces, but it was really that idea of competence. Yeah. And the fact that competence can be captured in a photograph of a male because they talked about how, you know, that when they put like a CEO picture next to the non-CEO picture, they would make sure that they both had sort of the same, you know, style of shoot. Mm-hmm. The, the head was always turned the same way. They'd always put, you know, a facial hair picture against another facial hair picture so that as many of the, you know, variables as possible could be the same, but still, even when, when presented with these two very similar photos, the people could pick out the CEOs as the more competent ones, just from a a snapshot photograph. And, uh, one interesting thing to me was how they, they talked about how some of these CEOs had what they called baby facedness, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of a, for lack of a better word, kind of a doughy round face. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, these, these CEOs were just not seen as competent at all. No, very likable. Very likable. You'd want to be their friend, sure. but you wouldn't want to give them a ton of money and have them try and run the world. But when they actually looked at sort of the characteristics of those people, they were the ones who were most qualified for success. Mm-hmm. And then there comes this idea then is what we present actually who we are, because I'm sure we, you know, we could have brought this up earlier. Yeah. The, the good looking people may be making more. But are they doing as much work? Are they necessarily as competent? Yeah. And are and, they contributing as much? And to piggyback on this idea of, of the idea of how, uh, especially male, um, physical features might communicate competence because in all of these CEO studies, it is kind of frustrating. All of the, 
All the photos are of male CEOs. But Malcolm Gladwell points out in one of his book that the average CEO is approximately three inches taller than the average man. And he further points out that while 30% of CEOs of these Fortune 500 companies are at least six foot two of the average population, only 3.9% of men stand this tall. Um, so there seems to, uh, there seems to be some kind of, I don't know, some kind of link between, uh, between not only men's physical appearance, you know, facial appearance, but also height. And then finally, just to, to drive home this idea of height, because here's the thing. We can't control what we look like. Really, I mean, like we can put on makeup and we can get Botox and all of this. But in terms of height in particular, we are, you know, we have to deal with the hand that we are genetically dealt, <laughs> deal dealt. Um, and so finally, there was this one uh, study where these economists found that men's wages as adults could be linked to their height at age 16 when they usually hit their adult height. And they found that increasing a man's height at age 16 by one inch increased their wages by 2.6% on average. Wow. Crazy. Well, you know, this, this, the study that we just talked about with the trustworthy CEOs, it was called a corporate beauty contest and it was done by researchers at Duke and the National Bureau for Economic Research. And they do point out that to become a CEO, it's more than just looking at a photograph. Obviously, sure. you've built up this really long career, but I think that it helps you connect the fact that the Newsweek hiring managers are letting someone who's probably taller and more, you know, classically good looking in the door. It just gives them more opportunities to succeed. But, you know, we mentioned this concept of do these people actually put in the work to get to where they are? You would think that as a CEO, you would. And I think that we do get sort of an evidence on how much you can contribute to your own success from a study we found called Beauty, Gender, and Stereotypes, Evidence from Laboratory Experiments, done by researchers from UC San Diego and Georgia State here in Atlanta. And um, this uh, study talked a lot about uh, generosity games mm-hmm. where uh, people, you know, there's some some studies they can do where, uh, you know, one per- if one person decides, like, let's say there's a pot in the middle of two people, and if both people decide to take it, then no one gets it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they both decide to give it, then they get to split it. And it's really about sizing up uh, cooperation and who you think will cooperate with you so that you can both walk away with the biggest pot possible. And these researchers sort of set up that kind of game where they gave people tokens and they would pay them back based on how they invested their tokens. You could invest tokens in public utilities or in private utilities. And you would get paid more individually if you put money into the private ones. You would get paid more as a group. The group would get more money if you put them into the public ones. Mm -hmm. And you don't know how the other people in your group are betting. But, uh, you know, obviously it's sort of in your best interest to do kind of a mix of the private ones and the public ones. So what they did was they got people in and, you know, they'd been prejudged as attractive or not attractive. And they had groups of four people playing these games for certain rounds and the people would get paid some money based on how they bet. But then they told the people just how much everyone was putting into the pot. And that changed things a little bit. Yeah, because one one thing that we've found across a lot of these attractiveness in the workplace studies is that more attractive people, 
no matter their gender, are perceived from the get-go to be more cooperative. Which really surprised me because you think about high school. I mean, like, the mean girls are the pretty girls. Right. I mean, I I don't know where this... I I was surprised to learn that, but that apparently is how, uh, if you're playing these cooperation games, how you apparently pick people. The people who are playing those games always would pick pretty people to play with. Mm -hmm. So when it was when it was only a a group effort to maximize the group good, the pretty people came out on top in terms of other people's expectations and other people's um, assessments of their performance because of this strange uh, cooperation attractiveness link. Yeah. So the the people who are playing with the attractive people would say, "Oh, these people have got to be donating to the public good. I will too." Yeah. Yeah. But. When they broke it down to the individual level, then things got a little hairy for the attractive ones. Yeah, they showed, they basically showed after every round how much everyone had put into the different categories and the non-attractive people per se found out that the attractive people had not been investing as much in the public good as, you know, they had thought and Mm -hmm. their stereotype was crushed and then they played the game much differently. Yeah, they judged the attractive women in particular much more harshly than the attractive men because they really attracted not uh, expected not only attractive women to be cooperative uh, because of their their inherent beauty but also I would I think that we could easily say that women compared to men would just be expected as mm-hmm. part of our genetic makeup to just exude more cooperation um, than men. motherly instinct yeah so they were perceived to be far more selfish whereas the attractive men um, even though they might not have been as generous as uh, as previously thought, they were still perceived to be exhibiting leadership skills. Yeah, and I think that this gets to where we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about when you start to be penalized for your looks. And it didn't take that much for the non-attractive people to turn on the attractive women in this study and say, look, you're not helping me, I'm not helping you, and everyone's dividends from this game went down. Whereas the men, as Kristen said, just had to put in a little bit. And everyone was like, gosh, that guy is generous. Mm-hmm. That guy's amazing. Let's all just help him out. And that guy made more money. And here's the thing, though, too, when you start to look at, because we've read through a lot of these different studies, there are all sorts of studies on the different ways that an attractive woman is perceived, an attractive man is perceived. And over and over again, it seems like attractive women just seem to elicit more of a reaction from both men and women who are looking at them um, than, uh, than men. And there is a study we found from Florida State University that kind of confirms this idea that uh, they had both male and female observers look at physically attractive female, quote-unquote, targets, as, as the study um, authors call them, and then looking at attractive male targets. And when it comes to looking at the attractive women, both male and female observers um, really paid a lot of attention to them. Now, when it came to the males, um, females, you know, kind of, kind of looked at the attractive males, but they, they, but they weren't nearly as distracting because they were giving them like other tasks, cognitive tasks to do to kind of rate how distracting, you know, if a, if a hot woman walks in the room, um, how distracting she is compared to how attractive, you know, a hot, a hot dude is if he, if he walks across. And time and again, the women, while of course we'll look up and see a man, it's a lot easier to put our head back down and keep going about it. Whereas with a woman for both men, for both men and women, um, you know, it just sends something in our brains just shooting off. 
So taking all of these study findings into account and really, you know, acknowledging this, uh, this kind of mental cognitive impact that attractive women seem to have, uh, even more so than men, it makes a lot of sense when Newsweek writer Tony DeCapel points out that the bulk of research, not only on the benefits, but also the drawbacks of attractiveness in the workplace, really focuses on women. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the same kinds of things happen to men, and I'm not trying to, the point of this podcast is not to victimize beautiful women (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it is it, it is interesting to think about this aspect of beauty in the workplace, and I have a feeling that everyone listening right now can think about some attractive person, super attractive person they have worked with at some point, who may have gotten treated a little bit differently than other co-workers, whether that's positive or negative. But like Molly said early on in the podcast... It's not just about beauty, thank God. Um, the Newsweek survey also pointed out that there are two factors that the hiring managers rated as more important than physical attractiveness. Right. As we said, their experience and confidence. And I think that when you think back to the game, the gambling games, where the people, once they found out what the people, what the attractive people actually did, mm-hmm. I think that it does show that information still has sway once you know what a person is actually doing on a team project or, to, you know, in our workplace would be like, what articles are you writing? How mm-hmm. good are your articles? You know, what are you talking about on your podcast? Once that is known, that can counteract the beauty stereotypes that your boss might have about you. So it's more about, you know, even though it, it sounds from the from the surface like, you know, putting your head down and just working doesn't do you any good. I do think that, you know, obviously there is something to be said for having the uh, information to support yourself and also just having the confidence both in the work that you've done and in your appearance, no matter what it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you decide to give up because you're not attractive and sorry, this sounds so weird to say, but I mean, people can tell if you've given up. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying that having that confidence in yourself, no matter what you look like, can be sure. important. And just to throw one final study in the mix, uh, there was one from the Journal of Applied Psychology that found that, again, attractiveness certainly makes a difference in the workplace. And there does seem to be a lot of evidence for some kind of, quote unquote, beauty premium uh, that exists. But experience and intelligence really will make a lot of a lot of difference. Like there's been uh, one study that's been getting a lot of play in popular media this past week, Molly, and that was talking about how attractive women were discriminated against when applying for jobs that are considered to be masculine. You know, so say, I think the examples they threw out were like a construction foreman or certain types of engineers or even truck driving. Um, if a woman, uh, you know, looks, I guess, too by attractive in this sense, they're equating that with appearing, you know, our, our social idea of being feminine. Um, you know, for, for attractive women applying for those jobs, even if they might have the experience, just there, uh, simply by looking more like a hot lady, if you will, they, they aren't as likely to get the job. So there are all these different factors into it, but it is going into this, but it is interesting that no matter what, beauty is kind of this common thread throughout all of it. Mm-hmm. And like it or not, 
it's there and it's definitely in play. And like I said, I mean, take two seconds and think about your employment history. And I bet every one of us can come up with some, some, uh, smoking coworker <laughs> who, uh, who it seemed to, um, affect. So yeah, just be aware that, you know, even if it's not a contest that you want to win or think you can win, there is a beauty contest going on at work. And we want to know, have any of you experienced the beauty contest at work? Let mm. us know. Send us your stories or post them on our Facebook. It's just Stuff Mom Never Told You on Facebook. And uh, let's let's start this conversation, people. And if you work with John Hamm, of course you've got to deal with a beautiful person and at the, work. And the thing is, Molly, I'm sure we have so many attractive listeners out there. <laughs> there just have to be so many stories to share. So we want to hear all of them. And in the meantime, we'll share a couple of stories with you right now. Uh, I've got an email from Renee about the long distance relationship podcast. And she dated a guy long distance for almost two years. Um, but 10 years later, they are still very much in love. So she's got some advice. She writes, do the fun stuff, but also the normal stuff. When I was single, I remember my friends and I would always say, I just want someone to sit on the couch with. Be honest, but don't bore each other with the details over the phone. Save some stories for when you are together. Don't let visits be all physical. When you see each other only once in a while, the physical stuff will be exciting, but talk and interact too. Be realistic and honest about what you want out of the relationship and what you are willing to do to get what you want. Introduce each other to your friends and family, but don't plan all-day activities with others unless your significant other has expressed a desire to use their precious time with you for a group activity. And lastly, find ways to be spontaneous within the confines of your situation. We would plan to meet on a particular day and both leave home around the same time, calling each other every so often. We would meet in some small town within the reservation, find a hotel, and then find something to do. It was planned, but there was still an element of spontaneity. Thank you very much, Renee. All right, I have another long-distance relationship email here, and this one's from Jamie. And she has been separated from her boyfriend for the past four years for by 600 miles. They're both at um, both at school, and he's graduated now, and he's come back, and they've reunited. And she says, I argue that everyone should go through a period of long distance, even if it's just a month. Couples who see each other every day and always have simply can't appreciate their time together. It gets taken for granted. Of course, I got frustrated from time to time when he was so far away, as did he, but we always made our relationship a priority, and I wouldn't change any of it. The absence definitely makes the heart grow fonder. And for my ending, two months ago, he proposed. Of course, I said yes, and the wedding is next year. Oh, that's sweet. That's sweet note to end this on. So thanks for your stories. Keep sending them in. Again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Also, um, flood our wall on Facebook. We, it's a great place to, uh, to post your ideas and thoughts and feelings and everything up there too. And cool articles. You guys send in really cool articles. Yeah. So many great links. And, uh, and that way you can share them with, with, uh, with other people as well. And follow us on Twitter. And then finally, you can check out our blog during the week. It's stuff mom never told you. And you can find it at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?